Hello, club members. I'm Ariana, and today I have a very special guest with me. Alex is the writer of a movie called Godless, The Eastfield Exorcism, which is a new true crime horror film that just premiered at the Overlook Festival in New Orleans in the last few weeks. Hey, how are you going? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So Alex is a fan of the podcast, and he reached out to me with the idea for a true crime and exorcism mini episode. And I was obviously all about that. So we coordinated to bring this mini episode to you guys so that I didn't have to put Kate through a mini episode where I talk about true crime that I know she hates. (laughs) So why don't you tell us more about yourself, Alex? Hey, so yeah, I'm the screenwriter of a film called Godless, the Eastfield Exorcism, which will be premiering on Tubi sometime in the spring in the United States. Oh, cool. Other territories, we're not sure exactly when and on what platforms it'll be coming out, but uh, if you follow the Instagram page, there'll be announcements there. But, you know, really what it's about is a collection of true crime exorcisms that have occurred over the years in which... uh, Mostly women have been murdered by their spouses and or parents and family members, which is obviously, you know, a pretty grim subject matter. And so a lot of the stuff I think we'll be talking about today is, you know, worthwhile preparing yourselves if you're not keen to hear about those kinds of um, messy, brutal violence. listeners are definitely keen. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, um, And so, like, you know, it, it really took inspiration from a couple of different true crimes one was uh the trial of hussein Suleiman karai in sudan the other was joan volma here in victoria where i'm from australia but there are others as well as like janet moses um victoria Columbae. um you know there's there's a whole host uh, of stories that we could go through and th- that's really you know my position on on all this stuff is there's really no end to the list of violent exorcisms causing death over the years. You know, you can go back all the way to the 1600s or to the early 20th century and there's just no shortage of of stories to draw inspiration from and a lot of them sadly have very similar themes and very similar patterns of mental health issues being recognised as some form of spiritual possession. I would guess say that you know, my film deals primarily with the charismatic Christian movement and... Nice. Yeah, that, and that's kind of similar to the popular cultural idea of exorcism as, you know, as portrayed in the, the Friedkin film, you know, with the, the pea soup and mm-hmm. heads turning. It's like that Christian idea, but it is a cross-cultural phenomenon, the idea of uh, some form of demonic possession. It's not something that's specific to the Abrahamic religions, so, you know, Islam, uh, Judaism, and Christianity, it, it, it's cross-cultural. It occurs all over the world. Uh, one of the yeah. exorcisms we base it off was actually uh, Makutu exorcism, which is the Maori religion, so the uh, native uh, people of New Zealand. So, and yeah. it's really, yeah, so there's a lot of different, cultures but they have very similar things in terms of beating fumigation uh which sounds a bit strange to say fumigation like you probably think of like um pesticides getting rid of insects in the house but uh a a lot of what occurs is like burning of incense and strong um 
Oh, okay. Yeah, like leaves and things like that, smoke houses, like that type of stuff. Um, yeah. And then water rituals and drowning people in salt or like salt water, I should say, or just general water. Like that's another quite common thing that occurs cross-culturally. I was going to say, I actually saw a study that was conducted by the National Institute of Mental Health, and it found that three-fourths of the world's cultures and societies believe in some sort of spiritual possession. (laughs) And (laughs) the greatest number of societies believe in this come from the Pacific Islands, with the least coming from Native Americans from both North and South America, which I thought was very interesting. That is pretty interesting, actually. I didn't, I'd never heard that before. Um, I've spent a lot of time, my, my father lives in Papua New Guinea, so I've spent a lot of time in like the Pacific Islands. And nice. I can say with a lot of um, sort of firsthand knowledge that witchcraft and exorcism and stuff like that are quite common in the Pacific Isles yeah. as well as mm-hmm. domestic violence, you know, sometimes as high mm. as like, I've seen numbers that it's like 85, 90% of, of households wow. have experienced it. You know, um, it's, wow. it seems to me that uh, a lot of this stuff goes hand in hand with domestic violence. You know, a lot of the stories that I've, I've looked at you know, particularly in the case of Victoria Colombia uh, in the UK, it, as much as it was an exorcism, it really all the demonic stuff just seemed like an excuse to effectively torture a child. Um, so it's how it's, old was she? She was eight years old. Um, so oh, you know wow. this this really this wasn't that long ago, by the way. Um, this was I want to say yeah, it's two thousand. Um, and mm. she had come from the Ivory Coast, uh, leaving her mother to go live with her great aunt and her great aunt's partner. And they regularly tortured her. Um, you know, they left her in an unheated bathroom, which in the UK would be extraordinarily cold, burned her with cigarettes, yeah. uh, starved her. They had her tied up for days at a time. Uh, regularly beat her with shoes, belt buckles, coat hangers, wooden spoons, bare hands, what have you. Um, you know, eventually culminating in her dying of organ failure. And, you know, there was, in the UK, there was quite a huge national health response to this because the family had been visited multiple times by the NHS, the you know, civil uh, servants there. As well as yeah. they had taken the child to the local pastor as uh, demonically possessed, trying for exorcism. And the pastor noticed like her hands had been burnt up and were quite blackened and everything like that. And she was malnourished. But instead of taking that as a sign of domestic violence, of child abuse, yeah. they took that as a sign of uh, demonic possession, um, which... Quite concerning. Wow, that is crazy. So you said this was in 2000 in the UK. Yeah. Do you feel like there's a correlation between, you kind of said, you know, areas where domestic violence is more prevalent, but also potentially, you know, the idea of possession in places where, you know, the idea of spirituality and and religious um, understanding is more prevalent? It's a really good question as to what kind of, formulates the the bedrock of 
thinking in terms of demonic possession and and where the the violence comes from i th- i think there is definitely something to be said of a patriarchal environment uh i think that that is one of the sort of pillars of this uh, another element seems to be times of uh religions competing against one another oh okay yeah it's actually quite i've, I've read this in a few different sources that one of the the big developments of the the 1990s and the rise of exorcism has been the the split amongst uh evangelical charismatic protestant movement style churches who are all kind of vying in terms of competition so they're all kind of trying to outdo each other in terms of how big and miraculous that they can seem as well as the fact that there are dwindling numbers so it's like as a means of trying to keep the congregation fired up you've got to have an enemy and you've got to have miracles performed demonstration of yeah demonstrations of faith and you know particularly within the charismatic movement i think those demonstrations of faith are vital to understanding this because a huge part of the philosophy is to do with being touched by god so when someone's speaking in tongues you're being touched by God someone's talking through you and and that's a sign of divination it's a sign that you are without sin now everyone wants to be without sin so therefore everyone wants to put on these big displays um Mm -hmm. and this is another area where the term exorcism is almost outmoded because these ministries the charismatic evangelical ones wouldn't use generally wouldn't use the word exorcism to describe what's happening they would use the word deliverance (laughs) but Mm. when someone's rolling along (laughs) on the floor screaming and kicking and there's a group of people all pushing down on them praying and yelling and and talking in tongues uh, that's an exorcism their their objective is to cast out the evil spirits and that sounds potentially to the uh, average Protestant or or Catholic uh, listener like this outrageous uh, outrageous thing uh, but for a charismatic evangelical church that's daily you know that's a completely normal part of the ministry I've wow yeah I've been there firsthand uh, part of my research for the film was going to some of these ministries and um, really yeah yeah uh, there was oh god there's a little bit of infiltration <laughs> <laughs> on my behalf undercover work and um you know, I also spent a couple of years in a Christian college, which was um, multiple denominations, but primarily the denominations were charismatic and, um, you know, evangelical type. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah, I went to Catholic high school, but it stopped there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Likewise, I'm, uh, you know, I think in terms of disclosing my bias, uh, I'm an avowed atheist. Um, <laughs> Same, yeah. H- however, like I, I do think, like in that, a big part of me does want to clarify that the film and my take is not anti-religion. I'm all for you believe in whatever you want to believe. You work your side yeah. of the street, and I work mine. Yeah. Just don't kill women and kids. <laughs> you know, we got to draw a line somewhere. Yeah. So my question for you is. Do you believe that people can be possessed? Well, <laughs> I think you can distinguish an exorcism from uh, possession uh, in terms of 
uh, a Roman Catholic perspective, anyone really can be exercised. Baptism is strictly speaking a form yep. of exorcism because you're getting rid of you know sins and you're casting out demons. Possession is the really the final manifestation of demonic activity in which you've lost sovereignty over your body. You've lost mm-hmm. uh, free will. Something is occupying the, the body and forcing you to do things you wouldn't ordinarily do. Right. I personally would say that there is a less than 1% chance that that is indeed occurring. <laughs> um, I, I never... Cannot be ruled out. Yeah, I never <laughs> rule out the idea that perhaps there's some form of... Uh, creature out there in the universe that we don't know we've never seen before um that is some kind of psychic vampire that can do all kinds of weird <laughs> stuff um you know like then look it feels like you're more of an agnostic than an atheist then <laughs> well when it comes to being a hundred percent like anyone that says i'm 100 percent sure of something well yeah. y- you can't really be you know th- there's so much in terms of our understanding in terms of psychology that has developed over right. the years. Like you look at the um, early interpretations, medical interpretations of demonic possession, which goes back all the way to Hippocrates, who of course, you know, you'd know from the Hippocratic Oath. He wrote this essay called On the Sacred Disease, which is all about epilepsy. Uh, I think it was mm-hmm. around like, you know, 450 BC. Someone fact check me, but you know, Quite some time ago. And he's looking at it and he's going, I don't, I'm not sure that epilepsy and other things that can be construed as possession are indeed possession or bad spirits. I think there could be something natural at play in the mind. Now, of course, he couldn't at the time distinguish exactly what that was. But, you know, a a few thousand, a thousand, two hundred years later, you know, you're in the 1600s during the witch trials. Other people were coming to similar conclusions um, during during that period around demonic possession. Some people were almost heretically saying, "Oh, well, maybe it's something to do. Maybe it's something to do with their uterus, <laughs> and we're going to call it hysteria." Hysterical women. Yeah, these yeah. hysterical women. Mass and, hysteria. Yeah, <laughs> and obviously, you know, fast forward to three hundred years, and uh, that starts to evolve again into to more contemporary ideas of schizophrenia but even then like you go to the 1960s and 70s and you're talking about you know disassociative disorders and multiple personality disorder those terms to my knowledge would not be used anymore people would not accept that generally speaking as a diagnosis so yeah it's very it's very easy for us to quite arrogantly say well, I've got an iPhone. We know science. We know everything. But um, I don't think we do. There's plenty of phenomenon in the natural world we don't understand. I did look up um, a little bit more about spiritual possession mm-hmm. and how that's defined in our um, mental disease handbook, the DSM-5. Yeah. And in clinical psychiatry, trance disorders are probably the closest um, because they're defined as states involving temporary loss of the sense of personal identity. Mm. And full awareness of your surroundings. So it is a type of dissociative disorder, but there are many aspects of psychosis, mania, Tourette's, epilepsies, you know, schizophrenia um, that create this idea of possession. And I agree with you. I think mental illness and mental health is so complex. And I think we're just beginning to barely, you know, explore 
the disease processes. And I think that there's not enough knowledge to diagnose people with these things yet. Um, but I do think it's very interesting that this has been going on for so long and we still don't have a very clear understanding of what could be causing it. Well, I think it comes down to the nature of our reality as an internally lived space. Um, so, you know, from a psychological perspective, we have been grappling for all time, I would say, with what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be conscious? And there is some form of interaction between the corporal body, the mind itself, and then within the mind, the feeling that I'm an individual, uh, I have free will, and how that interacts yeah. at a, like, you know, all, all, all kind of in a messy in a messy way and i don't think anyone has a an answer to those things otherwise if we did would have a very clear definition on what consciousness is would have a very clear definition on what free will is and i don't think that we have fully come to terms with that and that's a very scary thing but i also would say that if you look at the leaps and bounds psychology has made in the past 70 years alone it's a fairly new science. Um, like when, like Sigmund Freud was what, like the the nineteen thirties, nineteen twenties, something like that. You know. Yeah, it, that sounds right. Yeah, we, we've made a lot of progress since then in terms of at least attempting to understand the human mind. And if you look at, you know, what the the early mathematicians were able to do, like you know, they're able to work out a lot of stuff, but there was still plenty of things, uh, you know, left unknown. I think the most potent thing we can say as people is that we don't know but we want to find out <laughs> yes no i agree completely i mean that pretty much sets up my complete and utter fascination with this idea of bicameral mentality mm -hmm. that my brain just like will not let go of so i mean i i've told the the listeners before like i have a bachelor's in biochemistry and a bachelor's in classical civilizations and while i was in undergrad i was doing this paper about, you know, the emergence of the brain chemistry that created the self-conscious mind and how that coincided with the emergence of the Greek and Roman, you know, paganism and how it kind of was around that time 3,000 years ago when our brains went from one type of primitive brain to something a lot more similar to what we deal with these days. So, you know, back in the day, people would experience urges and emotions and feelings as these things that they did not recognize as coming from their own brains. Like mm -hmm. they would have an urge to go to war or to love somebody and they would think that it came from an external source because the beginning parts of their brain were underdeveloped to the point where they would hear these urges as auditory hallucinations mm. and so <laughs> they would like assume like the god of love was telling them to love this person or the god of war was telling them to start a war with this person and that's why there's so many different gods in greek and roman civilizations because there's right. pretty much a God for everything. And it's because at that point in brain development, they were hearing these urges as an external source from them. And this was obviously not um, my theory at all. It's from um, 
a guy named Julian Jaynes, and he published this book in the 70s, and this is his hypothesis. But basically, he has a, a very long book that I attempted to read, but it goes a lot over my head frequently. But basically, it's the understanding that there is this thing called the bicameral mentality where you know, based on his research, you know, there were two cognitive functions, one part of the brain that was speaking, the other part that was listening. And basically it was just that people were making, you know, new conscious evaluations and new situations as hallucinations from, you know, a God giving them commands. And he basically inferred that this is the existence, you know, the existence of modern day schizophrenia might've been a remnant of this earlier humanities mm. bicameral state. That is actually really, really fascinating. See, I I would be completely unsurprised if there was some form of evolutionary explanation for, for things like schizophrenia, such as that, because it does explain a lot, doesn't it? Like, if you've got multiple um, voices in a, you know, more primitive brain, that there would be some form of... Like, follow on to, to that in like in in the human brain I could I could see that working for for me um like has is that kind of caught on as a theory I think a lot of people I think it's like a love or hate theory okay I think yeah. a lot of people have strong feelings about it and I think that either people will spend their you know their doctorates and their postdocs looking for <laughs> evidence to support it and then other people will go crazy looking for evidence to disagree with it. So I think it it hasn't been, you know, fully proven yet, but I think there is a lot of evidence that's pointing Mm. us in that direction, which I think is pretty cool. One of the things that he did say was that, you know, he was looking, obviously he's not a neuroscientist, Mm. but he was looking through research that, that he suspected that the voices came from the right side of the brain that were counterparts to the left side's language centers and that the regions in the right side were mostly dormant in modern humans. But when they do like MRs and things of, you know, patients that have schizophrenia or for whatever reason suffer from auditory hallucinations, those parts of the brain are more active during that experience. Um, So they're suspecting that you know, because that's more dormant in modern day humans, this is evidence that, you know, schizophrenics might be, you know, it might be a mutation that's a remnant of our early ancestors. And that seems to me like a much more plausible uh, explanation for uh, how the human mind works and as to why people would display uh, symptoms that could be confused with possession, um, then uh, there are demons that somehow enter our bodies because like (laughs) you know yeah that that to me just makes a whole lot more sense that like the brain is some form of biocomputer and sometimes uh the the wiring is a little faulty just seems much more reasonable explanation um which i think kind of to to go back to the exorcism style thing if you look at the history of exorcisms as they've been performed in the sort of abrahamic judeo-christian sect the idea of demonic possession in terms of symptoms has actually changed quite a lot over over the years and you know if you look at the gospel biblical evidence of casting out demons it's actually very very limited in terms of what is described and one of them they defined it as yeah i think i think jesus only performed something like three exorcisms and there's maybe like 
one or two others performed by Solomon in the Old Testament. And, and primarily mm-hmm. the things that are described are things like foaming at the mouth and, you know, uncontrolled spasming, which, you know, we hear that these days and we'd say that sounds a lot like epilepsy. You know, like mm-hmm. it's, it's a pretty interesting field in so far as in the thousand, two thousand years since all these extra things have been added on as symptoms to meet the criteria of what we want it to be as opposed to what it actually is and trying to fill in the gaps that aren't actually addressed in a um, biblical perspective. Right. You're talking about like the idea of possession as like speaking in languages you've never learned and knowing things you can't possibly know. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of that, that a lot of that, there's no real biblical context for and like even even that right. xenoglasia or gloss, glossia, I should say, which is speaking languages you you've never um, learned or whatever. I've seen a few different studies in regards to this, and it just seems to be absolute hooey. Like no one's ever really uh, <laughs> demonstrated an ability to suddenly speak Latin proficiently. But as you were just talking about in terms of the bicameralism and how that's something that's like people really try and prove and vice versa people really try and disprove when it comes to exorcisms and the demonically possessed quote-unquote demonically possessed there is no real room for disproving that it is kind of like a finger trap that the harder you pull out of it yeah the more it seems like you're possessed because if you believe that i'm possessed and i say i'm not actually possessed you turn around and say, well, that's what a possessed person would exactly. say. Exactly. <laughs> that is exactly what a possessed person would say. So there's just, there's no real, the, the confirmation bias that's, that's present in it mm. Um, mm-hmm. becomes this absolute finger trap. And, you know, again, I was saying, I think everyone's got the right to believe and practice whatever they want, but there has to be some form of consent. And when it comes to people being alleged of demonic possession, there's no way to withdraw consent effectively because yeah. you have been described as demonically possessed. We all agree that you're demonically possessed. And from here on, anything you exhibit in terms of the real you or asking to be let go of can be interpreted as the demon trying to manipulate us. Um, yeah. And then like in terms of the you know, speaking in foreign languages, if you just come out with some weird babble, hey, maybe that sounds like Spanish, you know, like it's, it's maybe, you know, it's really easy to fall victim to that. And uh, there's been plenty of instances like the Annalise Michaels case, I think is a really good example where, you know, they were all convinced that she was, uh, this is a German case, um, which is, you know, huge news. It's what the um, Emily Rose film is really uh, based upon. Um, but they were really convinced of, of her demonic possession because she told this story um, and she mentioned this biblical, like this Germanic biblical figure who's like extraordinarily obscure. It's like this, this lady was a devout Catholic. She, was, she went to Catholic school. It's not really that hard to believe yeah. that this... Um, Make that jump. Yeah, yeah. This, this kind of you know, somewhat obscure character had had been presented to her 
And and even the other evidence that I've seen people like Father Amort, who has this documentary out and multiple books, he's um, he was I believe he actually passed away. Um, he he was the probably the most outspoken exorcist um, for quite some time uh, in terms of like giving public interviews and, and writing novels and whatnot. And you know, a lot of what he talked about as evidence were people regurgitating, vomiting out nails and wooden dolls from their, their mouths and stuff like that, which you hear and you go, my God, that just sounds awfully freaky. But there are cases dating back all the way to the 1600s uh, in England where people would swallow pins, nails, all kinds of stuff to then vomit them out while pretending to be possessed. Ah. Yeah. But also, I mean, as a vet, I see dogs eat stupid shit too all the time, <laughs> and so they're not possessed. <laughs> yeah. How do you know? Have you asked the dog? <laughs> I can't I can't not prove because, it. Because so. <laughs> uh, I would say possession, that you, an object can be possessed, a house can be possessed, an animal can be, anything can be possessed. So, Yeah, you know, I guess that's true. Yeah, we've got to keep our minds open. Um, but no, I think, <laughs> I, I think that confirmation bias is really one of the the trickiest elements to deal with here because if you genuinely believe that someone is possessed and that they have fallen under demonic influence and that the demon will say and do anything well there is just there is no test for it there's no effective test because right yeah you know you, you look at the ritualia romanum which is you know effectively their the Roman Catholic Book of Exorcism. And, you know, it begins with the Liturgy of Saints, which is basically just giving a list of saints. And if they seem to be uncomfortable, then they're possessed. You know, if they detect that a <laughs> object has been secretly blessed and they kind of recoil at it, then they're possessed. It's like... Well, that's... Yeah, I mean, that's why religion is not science, right? Yeah. Because it's not... It's not rational. There's four check boxes for yes possession and no check boxes for a no possession. Like it's the reason why, you know, scary mental asylum horror yeah. is so scary because it's people get stuck in there and they're there forever because it's the stigma. It's like, oh, I can't trust anything you say now because you're defined as this person. So, I mean, I agree with you, and demons are omniscient, so even if you did have a test, they could pass it, theoretically. <laughs> well, and that's it. How do, you, how do you prove that you're sane? How do you prove that you're not a witch? Right. How do you prove that you're not demonically possessed? And that's, well, if you float... <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. If you float, um, or you weigh less or more than a duck or something more like that. More than a duck. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and, and it leads to really, like, utterly horrific stuff, like the Sudanese case from 1913 that um, I kind of go back to because it's so similar to the one that happened here in Australia, despite being in a different religious context. You know, th this is a person who's... She was 16 years old. She had no way of disproving that she was indeed possessed. The reasons people thought she was possessed was she exhibited signs of sort of like catatonia, like a comatose state where she'd be dissociated... She'd frequently wet the bed and say strange things and make strange noises, which they interpreted as English. So they thought that mm. she was under the 
um, uh, possession of an English spirit because uh, she was part of a, what's called a czar cult, which is similar to our demonology. However, as opposed to demons being these ethereal, um, uh, uh, other world creatures, they're in fact the spirits of the dead. So the assumption oh. that was being made here was that this 16 year old girl was under the possession of a English ghost of an English ghost in Sudan, which, yeah. <laughs> you know, sounds a little outrageous at the time. However, Sudan was under British mandates so British. Um, and so failing the local sort of village, um, attempt to get rid of the czar by playing music to appease it. They went to this Egyptian chap who was, you know, a few towns over and he was like, yep, don't worry. In seven days, I'm going to sort this out. So the moment he rocks up, more or less, um, he has a whip with him, uh, which instead of having a leather lash, has a tin lash, so like a shard of tin attached to it, and proceeds to whip her and beat her for four days, uh, savagely. Jeez. And like, I'm talking massively public humil- humiliation all the while telling her that yeah. she's a demon you know let's play armchair physician for a moment and say perhaps she did have some form of uh schizophrenia uh and dissociative yeah. if you're telling them that they're possessed of course that can likely lead to things manifesting that's escalating and escalating yeah. you know and and that's exactly what his behaviors led to escalations of her behavior as a play actor playing the possessed person and he escalated the violence continuing to whip her the the mother testifies at one point that you know she's she's left to to get water or something and return back and he she finds her daughter tied to a stump by her hands being whipped and strangled by this random man meanwhile just a couple hours before the entire village has seen her stripped naked and strangled and beaten in front of them. And like, they've gone to intervene and the exorcist has told them, um, hold on. I was trying to find the exact quote. He says, um, don't worry. I'm a doctor and I'm driving out the devils. Mm. Yeah. Which (laughs) I don't know if you're a doctor. (laughs) Well, actually, Quite to the contrary, he'd spent about seven, four to seven months in a Egyptian mental asylum. Um, oh my god! This. So, <laughs> Jesus, um, not ex- like he was the patient. Yeah, he was the patient. He was he was institutionalized. Oh yeah, he was he was brought in when he was about fifteen years old into prison for effectively shoplifting, like stealing bread or something like that. And the prison system, quote unquote, drove him crazy. And then he ends up in a mental institution for some time. Gets out and um, you know apparently the story that he tells is how he knew that he was a um, doctor and how he knew he was a shaman is that uh, jinn, a jinni uh, appeared to him. Like if you know the word genie comes from this idea of mm. uh, spirit. A spirit appeared to him and told him that he was a shaman. Seems like a visual hallucination to me. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not sure what your process of becoming a vet was. I assume it was something similar. Someone would appear to you in the dream and said, <laughs> yes. you're a vet. <laughs> Um, Absolutely. And so basically he, he failed to, um, to do anything over the four days and, and more or less admitted to the family that him 
beating her wasn't working. So on, on the fourth day after whipping her, decides to take her to the riverbed and have a final showdown with the demon and um, strangles her to death. Um, oh my God. Yeah, yeah, strangles her to death. And then he brings her back and um, to, to, to the family and says, look here, I've, I've, I've cured her. She's fine. The devils have gone. And he does not admit to killing her. He does not admit to her being dead, despite everyone going, oh my God, she's dead. Uh, until midnight yeah. that night. So hours and hours go by until he admits that she's indeed dead. Um, wow. And that is actually a short period of time for a exorcist to admit that they have indeed killed someone. Um, in the case of Luke Lee, which is another New Zealand case in 2000, funnily enough, around the same time as the Victoria Columbia case in the UK... Very similar thing, uh, an Assemblies of God church, so charismatic church. Um, the pastor was of Korean descent, as was the lady, um, Joanna Lee, uh, at the time, who'd come to New Zealand, met the church, and actually felt really welcome there. So she'd literally come to New Zealand to be a part of this church for a few months. You know, she was only going to be there yeah. for three months. By all accounts, she was this really lonely person who suffered from vitiligo, mm. which is this skin disease, um, mm. you know, where, you know, you, the pigmentation begins to fracture. So she was quite insecure and depressed about that, mm-hmm. which is, you know, incredibly sad. So you've got this vulnerable person who is lured in by a charismatic leader in a small knit community who tells her that the vitiligo and all your other issues, your feelings of depression and sadness and loneliness, they're, they're actually the cause, they're caused by demons, you know, and we're going to drive these demons out. So over the course of several days, they sit on her, they push down on her, they say that the, um, the demons are physically manifesting inside her body and they have to push them out by beating on her body and pushing them out. The, the pastor is literally putting all his weight on her, breaking ribs, breaking bones, as they're trying to oh, physically push out the, the yeah. demons. And uh, lo and behold, they murder her. Uh, she, she dies. Yeah. I should say they manslaughter her. Um, and they are unable to accept that she's indeed dead. And the pastor says... Basically, her spirit, the evil spirit, they've both been driven out. What we need to do is we need to call her spirit home so she can resurrect. So they start filming the dead body with um, early DVR cameras and praying and trying to sing her body back to life. And this continues for almost an entire week until somebody pays them a visit and goes, "Uh, hold on, there's a there's a dead lady here like someone needs to call an ambulance someone needs to call the police sure enough during the entire trial the the pastor pastor lee maintained the entire time that not only did he do nothing wrong but she would resurrect during the trial spoiler alert she did not resurrect during the trial (laughs) she doesn't yeah spoiler (laughs) she she doesn't she doesn't come back um and he he's eventually eventually found guilty of manslaughter the conviction is overturned for complicated legal reasons to do with consent, religious freedoms, uh, and, you know, 
New Zealand statutes and a retrial is demanded. By that time, he's gone back to South Korea and uh, they have never, to my knowledge, have never attempted to extradite him or bring charges against him. If he ever returns to New Zealand, they'll do it. But uh, I don't think Hmm. uh, he'll be doing that anytime soon. Um, Well, let me ask you, of your knowledge of these true crime associated exorcisms, has anyone ever been... um, convicted of murder or has it always been manslaughter given like the religious basis for their um i guess for why they did what they did ironically it's the hussein uh suleiman karat case where he was convicted of murder so that was the sudanese lady aisha the 16 year old Mm -hmm. um yeah he was convicted of murder i think though there's potentially an argument that because this was uh, an Islamic man under British mandate, perhaps there was more of a heavy hand, heavy hand, and more of a bias from the presumably Christian yeah. um, judges and um, prosecutors and police involved. Hmm. I mm-hmm. I would I would tend to say that that is what 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 most likely happens is is manslaughter because. The people yeah. who are acting on this genuinely, more or less, genuinely believe that what they're doing is in the best interests of... For good. Yeah, of, right. of, of good. And, you know, when it comes to, like, uh, Victoria Colombier, that's one of those rare cases where it's hard to distinguish whether or not the great aunt and her partner genuinely thought she was possessed or if they were just absolute sickos that wanted to beat this child. I, that was the really young one. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was the eight year old. Um, but she's not even the yeah. youngest. There's cases um, even very recently of two year olds, 10 year olds. And again, I say it mostly affects two year olds. Yes. Oh, yeah, geez. Yeah. So aren't they all possessed? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They certainly scream like they are. Um, <laughs> I, and, but that's, and that's the thing. Like there's, it's really not something that is limited to the distant past. In fact, it would appear that the Exorcist film has sparked a new level of interest in the stuff and that there's actually a very strong argument that exorcism now is at its historic peak, that it's being performed at a rate what? and at a scale that is surpasses all of human history. Wow. Yeah. In in Across all religions or certain religions in certain places? Uh, or I guess, what are the demographics behind that? The demographics behind that would be the revivalist movement, the charismatic movement, yeah. and evangelical and Pentecostal movements. Mm. Um, you know, pe- Pentecostalism and evangelical movements, charismatic, they, again, they won't describe it as an exorcism. They'll describe it as a deliverance. In effect, these are the same things. And they're, they're one yeah. and the same. It, it is driving out bad spirits via physical touch, via prayer, um, you know, talking tongues. It's the same thing. Uh, you can you can call it a deliverance ministry. You can call it an exorcism. You know, it, it, they're interchangeable. That's interesting. One question I have is, what is your opinion for why the majority of the victims are women i guess is it more than just that they're a more vulnerable group or do you think it has at least some component of women being more likely to be afflicted or show 
evidence of being afflicted by these mental illnesses? That is a profound question. I don't believe, and again, I will caveat this by saying not a doctor, but I don't believe women <laughs> are more likely to be mentally unwell than men. <laughs> I, <laughs> You're like, I'm going to back away slowly. I'm going to back away slowly from that one and say that, you know, men and women. I just think there's potentially a component of women being more likely to show evidence of these disorders. Because I don't know if you listened to the, I did an episode on the Salem witch trials and the idea of, mass hysteria Mm -hmm. and things like that. And I definitely remember part of my research did look into the gender inequality in regards to the mass hysteria and why it feels like the majority of people who have participated in these, you know, these situations have always been female. And I think it has at least some component of women being more likely to show these externally i think because they're more vulnerable they have less to lose and that's actually i think that vulnerability that question of vulnerability that to me i think is the most determinant factor i think because it affects children as much as it affects women um and and i think there there is something about subjugation as well in terms of like a patriarchal subjugation of femininity which you know a lot of these are occurring in cultures and situations where it's a male dominated household male dominated culture right so right i i just i wouldn't be totally convinced that it's anything to do with i think you could just be a normal everyday woman living your life and maybe (laughs) and maybe today you just don't feel like cooking you know and that's yeah. and that's enough to say, you know what? That is a demon talking. Because <laughs> I know my wife and she loves to cook. <laughs> yes. You know? Yes. I think it is definitely that. I think it is the power of suggestion. Yeah. It kind of freaks me out that this is like the peak of the prevalence mm-hmm. of exorcisms right now. Because that just seems absolutely wild to me. And that unfortunately makes me feel even more like you know we're moving backwards in regards to our society well it's actually very funny that you say moving backwards in terms of our society because i actually um you know i'm i'm at once an optimist and an abject pessimist because i i think (laughs) that one of the strangest things to come out of the 20th century is in fact new orleans where the film premiered really gave birth to this weird mixture of um, supernaturalism with Christianity, where the charismatic movement, the Pentecostal movement, a lot of these were born out of New Orleans, Louisiana, and they've taken on the world by storm. And what this new stream of Christianity believes is that the time of miracles is not over, that magic witchcraft, miracles such as resurrection, they're not things of the past, but actually things of the present. And this is the fastest growing denomination in terms of Christian thinking compared to anything else. The Catholics, Presbyterians, they're all losing numbers. Assemblies of God, you know, um, Hillsong, shout out Justin Bieber, 
Um, these, <laughs> <laughs> these are growing quite rapidly. And that's why the deliverance ministries or exorcism ministries are, are happening at such a rate that surpasses anything that's ever happened before. Because, you know, if you were to talk to people in the 1960s and ask uh, a general Christian population as to whether or not God can speak through them and, you know, tongues and if people can be resurrected and, you know, if God can make a miracle happen. Generally, people will say, like, the most of miracle you might get is maybe, you know, a statue of the Virgin Mary might cry, some blood. You know, maybe a crucifix, mm. the stigmata wounds will, you know, leak some blood and <laughs> big miracle. That. Yeah. Whereas nowadays, you've got people running around with snakes um, on their shoulders talking about, you know, divine intervention and demons and Baal worship and the Freemasons being evil and how Harry Potter is bringing demons into your house. <laughs> I, I shit you not, one of the ministries I went to was during the huge bushfires here in Australia where, um, you know, the, we covered the world in smoke, basically. I think the smoke from these bushfires went all the way to South America. And the, the ministry was showing images of the bushfires and in the fire drawing faces of demons and in the smoke drawing faces of demons and saying see that is proof that we are being punished by god oh my god yeah. uh... and I, I spoke to a man uh, who quite legitimately thought that uh because he lived in a fire affected zone like a place where you're at risk of having a house burned down and he thought because he'd been watching pornography that his house <laughs> was at risk. So no. nothing to do with the leaves and the trees or whatever. It's like I've been jerking off to some, you know, <laughs> some pornography. And those so demons, is everyone, dude. Chill. Yep. Those demons, they're coming after me with that flame and fire. Christian supernaturalism is a real force to be reckoned with. And I don't think it's one that is fully understood by the general population. I have to say, it's not one I fully understood before writing the film and even having written the film and spent the better part of four years linked into this world, I still don't fully understand it because it's such a strange mix of elements taken from Judaism. Like in a lot of preachers, they will actually use the Hebrew terms for things. So instead of saying Jesus, they'll say Yeshua. Instead of saying God, they'll say Yahweh. And so they're taking those elements and they're mixing them with voodoo, Haitian elements of um, curses and black magic, then mixing them with the Pentecostal ideas of talking in tongues. It's very bizarre. That is absolutely crazy. I think our society senses that we are on the verge of a religious renaissance (laughs) and i feel like we're grasping at straws and creating these stories that are just completely irrational Mm. to the point where just to satisfy this like need for something different Mm. and i think it's just complete bullshit but i i think it's hard because you know religion is always faith-based and we are now at the stage of what we call conscious incompetence in humanity, like in, <laughs> in, in learning, you know how it's like unconscious incompetence and then conscious incompetence. It's like, we know enough to know that we don't know anything, Yeah. but 
I think it's hard because we know there's so much we don't know, but we want to know it. So we create these things that don't exist. But my question is, and this is a little bit of an off topic thing, but what I'm really interested in is the idea that these, these hallucinations that people Mm. are experiencing are coming from, you know, if, if demons aren't, you know, if we're playing the odds and demons aren't real and these are coming from their, their subconscious, like, why is it that the subconscious creates these negative hallucinations? And also, does your subconscious have a mind of its own? And I think that's probably true. I think we use like 2% of our brain or something like that. This is a very deep topic and it's one of profound fascination of myself. Like, one of the things yeah. I'm working at it uh, on the moment is to do with very tangentially, but it, it, it's to do with the origins of human language because I find that mm. very interesting because when I have an idea and I'm sure it's the same for pretty well everyone, it generally is an image that is formed in your head. Like when I'm thinking of a scene, the first things that come to mind aren't actually words their images yet those images somehow get translated into to words which is more of a conscious process what gives you these ideas you know we're talking a lot at the moment about chat gbt and what that means for the future of creative works and i promise this isn't as much of a diatribe as it might sound (laughs) but you know the, the big question is is can chat gbt imagine well, what is imagination? Is imagination everything that I've experienced as a person, everything I know as a person, getting cooked up and mixed around in my brain and then re-emerging yeah. as something else? If that's all imagination is, then I presume at some point uh, technology will be capable of replicating that. Um, 100%. Yeah, exactly. But if that's not all that it is, if you listen to someone like uh, Roger Penrose, who worked with um, Stephen Hawking on the um, uh, all his early uh, black hole stuff, he has a very interesting take on, on this stuff because he, he doesn't believe consciousness is computation alone, that just simple algorithm doesn't explain consciousness because of irrational fears irrational behaviors one of the examples that he goes to quite frequently is elephants will often go miles and miles off track so they can play with the bones of their dead ancestors well there's no evolutionary cause for that there's no real reason why you should observe such rituals and the same goes for so many things human do uh like we we do so many strange things you know we smoke cigarettes we hold these huge funeral rites we have kings and queens i don't know if you all watched the coronation but that was pretty strange um you know (laughs) (laughs) we do a lot of weird stuff that you can't fully explain i don't think with just a purely algorithmic thing because if we're purely algorithms we would just be logical machines that behave as such your brain knows something that your conscious brain does not know oh absolutely like i think that's the key to figuring out what we're missing Mm. here why does humanity feel like they're missing something right now i think the key is to look inside ourselves because i think our subconscious picks up on things that we don't pick up on um 
I just wish I knew what it was like to use all of my brain. Because I think that there's ways to understand where you've been, where you're going, pattern recognition, almost like, I don't want to say mind reading, mm. but you can almost like pick up on such subtle clues yes. that you can almost understand everyone around you based on your intuition. I, I'm, I, I believe in that wholeheartedly, actually. Yeah. There was a another mini episode that I did on, like, I basically accumulated all these scenarios of people that had near-death experiences and what they interpreted as like what their near-death experience was and every single person one of the things that they kept going back to was that when they were replaying their lives they were actually seeing their lives from other people's points of view like they were (laughs) experiencing other people's emotions Like say, like you have, you know, you have a memory of your birthday party as a four-year-old. You're seeing that through the feelings of your parents. So like, I think you as a human are picking up on other people's emotions and empathies and internalizing that to the point where I think your brain has a lot more information than what you in your conscious brain think you have. And therefore I think your, (laughs) your subconscious definitely has a mind of its own to the point where I believe people can speak languages that they've never learned. I think that you have enough brain power to say things and do things and know things about people that you don't even, aren't even conscious of yourself knowing. Look, as somebody who has experimented (laughs) with some pretty radical drugs, I can I can safely say that your brain is picking up on all kinds of signals and is capable of doing all kinds of stuff, um, yeah. for sure. Yeah. And there is definitely uh, mental blocks that we put up. I think it starts somewhere in adolescence. Like at some point, as we mature, we do turn off our imagination. We do turn off our ability to to listen um, because whether that's educational or whether that's just natural development, I don't know. Um, but I, I too, I would love that, you know, that limitless drug that um, they give to, yeah. uh, what, what's his face? <laughs> anyway, they, they give to that bloke in the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like where it just like <laughs> opens up your brain, um, yeah. you know, it turns your galaxy brain. I, I would love that because I think we are probably much smarter than our conscious minds let us be. I think you're absolutely right. I agree. I think that even if I saw someone speaking in tongues Mm. and knowing things about my life, they had no way of knowing, I would still be like, this is coming from your subconscious and not a spiritual entity. Yeah. And I think that's, that's really interesting that you say that because I think part of the block might be that to your, I'm not sure that your subconscious and deep unconscious brain actually have the tools to talk to you because I know it's not true for every person, but I personally, I've got a monologue, you know, um, as in like I talk to myself, as in my brain says, okay, what are we doing? Um, I've got to look at my notes. I've got to look, you know, look at the screen. Like I've got an internal monologue going. That's in English. I'm not bilingual yet, so it's just English. (laughs) Um, But, you know, you take a step back into the subconscious and the unconscious there is some form of original language there, and I believe it's in pictures. I think that's why comic books are still around. I think it's why films are, are so visceral as an experience, is because we're we're really good with pictures. Mm. Um, you know, mm-hmm. you look at pre-civilization cave paintings. 
they are sequential art. They're comic books. You know, we were we were doing yeah. things in pictures. But if you think in letters and you think in words at the forefront of your mind, but then the back of your head is pictures and intuition and feeling, you're at a barrier. You're there's there is a barrier yeah. there. But again, not a scientist. This is just my opinion. This is one crazy <laughs> you know, man's Some people ramblings. don't think in words. Yeah. <laughs> some people think in pictures and feelings. I think in abstract. I don't think in words. We, see, I just can't understand that. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's so bizarre. My dreams are absolutely crazy yeah. because they are like multidimensional. I can't even put them into words when I wake up because they just, I, they make no absolute sense at all. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe they do. And that's the other thing. Like, you know, we're talking about consciousness and the, the subconscious. Maybe dreams do make sense. And I think that's the Jungian idea of like archetypes and dream interpretation. I personally wouldn't want to go too deep into interpreting dreams because, again, I don't know that we know that language. I don't know that we've got that Rosetta Stone. Yeah, I don't think we do. Yeah. But it'll be cool if one day we do. Um, if we do unlock that potential. Um because yeah, the human mind is capable of a lot of really, really brilliant things, uh, and it is as equally beautiful as it is terrifying. I'd say, yeah. You know, because yeah, I, I I love this line in True Detective where he's like, "We're we're all just experiencing our lives inside a locked box," and you know Oof. that can be a haunted house if you're not careful. Ooh. Yikes. Yeah, I like that idea. That sounds fun, though. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Well, I feel like this was very eye-opening. I feel like we got a lot deeper than we intended to. <laughs> yeah, we- which is so funny. We're like, we're just going to talk about true crime session. It'll be fun. And then we're like, the subconscious, mo-, like, just an explosion of thought. Blame that one on me. I'm glad that we had, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like, I feel like this was great though. I feel like I have a lot more to think about. I agree with you. I think the mind is a clusterfuck and there's so much we don't know about it. And I think part of schizophrenia and mental health and possession comes from that part of your brain that we don't understand yet. So I think this is very interesting. So tell us a little bit more. Again, remind us how we can watch your movie. Oh, so yeah, Godless, The Eastville Exorcism. An official date has not been announced yet. It will be coming out on in the United States as a two-week exclusive sometime in the spring. Uh, you can follow the Instagram, it's just Godless. Um, Alexander underscore Angus Wilson on Instagram as well. So I'll be putting things on my page as well. Um, but yeah, I think... The, the film hopefully deals with all this stuff that we're talking about in a successful and respectful manner. Um, I'm, I'm quite proud of it, and we got a pretty good response at Overlook. So, yeah, check us out. But otherwise, the Penguin Book of Exorcism is out there. There's all sorts of resources to uh, go through this stuff as well um, in terms of resources you can look at. Um, and I would just say if you're struggling with mental health or domestic violence, Please reach out to somebody because help is available. This stuff is is quite severe and it can get really out of hand. Really heavy. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, when your movie comes out, 
text me and I will somehow relay to the listeners how they can watch yeah, it. Yeah, and you're, if you have any crazy dreams, text me and I'll try and interpret yeah. some of my young gen, you know, arms It'll be a clusterfuck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Ariana. Yeah. Thank you for uh, coming on here and talking to me and saving Kate from having to talk to me about all this existential yeah. true crime exorcist bullshit. Yeah. I know she appreciates it. All right. Well, much love to everyone. And um, yeah, I'll speak to you soon. Yeah. Thank you.